In lesson two, we're gonna, going to study together about how that the glory of God, the manifested presence of God, is the thing that makes the church really the church. The manifested presence of God and the glory of God is what gives us our identity as believers and gives us our identity and fulfills the ministry that God has entrusted to us while we're here on the earth. I'd like to invite you to turn with me, please, in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 33. Because Exodus 33 is, for me, a very powerful, powerful scripture. While personally, at the same time, it's one of the saddest. It's one of the most revealing chapters in the Old Testament concerning the nature and the personality of God. While at the same time, it is one of the most, I think, for me, sad chapters. Because in Exodus 33, just to sort of set us up a little bit for what is about to transpire here, remember that God had made a covenant with Abraham. And he had promised Abraham that I will make of you a great, great, great nation. And he said to him that this old man that had no heir, that had no children, God came and entered into covenant relationship with him and said, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to bless all of your descendants. And you're going to have so many descendants, they're going to be like the stars of the sky and the sands of the sea. And you remember the entire story about the birth of Abram's son, Isaac, and then how that God, even when Isaac was a young man, told him to go out and sacrifice him. Because of the love that Abraham had for the Lord, He was willing even to sacrifice the promise that God had given him. And you remember that whole account and how that transpired. But God took Isaac when he saw Abraham's heart and how Abraham was literally willing to offer him up as a sacrifice and God supernaturally intervened, provided a ram caught in the thicket which became the sacrifice and spared the life of Isaac. God saw the heart of Abraham and God said, now I'm going to do it. And you remember the story of how God through Isaac and Jacob and Esau and the children of Isaac and the grandchildren of Isaac that became the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren of Abraham, that God did in fact raise up for himself a people. And how that you remember the story of Joseph, everyone here remembers these stories, I'm moving quickly and how that he was a slave in Egypt, and yet God blessed him while he was there. But over 400 years elapsed after Joseph had gone to Egypt, and God from his lineage had raised up a multitude of people. Estimates say perhaps even 2 million people. But they were slaves of the Egyptians. They were in bondage. They were the slaves. And though they were the children of God and the heirs of God and those that were going to inherit all the blessing of Abraham, for 400 years they'd been locked away in slavery. And you remember the story of how when Moses was 80 years old that God came and appeared unto him. In Exodus chapter 3, you find that account. How a bush begins to ignite and be ablaze with the fire of God. But the bush was not being consumed. The branches weren't falling off. The leaves weren't falling off. And a charred remain left behind. But the bush was there. But there was fire all over it. And Moses saw this bush. And it was a curiosity to him. And it was an oddity to him. 
But he approached the bush out of curiosity. And then the Lord spoke to him out of that bush. Why? Because glory is the manifested presence of God. And come into the natural realm where people can experience God using one or more of their five senses. And God spoke to him out of that bush and said, Take off your shoes for the ground on which you stand is holy ground. And that day marked the change of Moses' life and the beginning of the fulfillment of his destiny. You remember how that God spoke to Moses and said, Go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Let them go. I've come down to deliver them and take them up to the land of promise. And the subsequent chapters that passed by saw Egypt literally destroyed under the judgments of God because of the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. But finally Moses and these two million slaves come out of Egypt. And God takes them to the Red Sea, divides it. They walk across on dry land. And then he closes the waters on the Egyptian army, eliminating their only remaining threat to their safety. And how God took them out into a wilderness to test them. He was abiding above them by day as a pillar of cloud. The Shekinah glory of God was like a cloud overshadowing them by day. At night, he was like a pillar of fire that illuminated them and kept them safe and secure. Imagine, if you would, in the ancient Near East in that time where there was no light pollution, no factories, no air pollution. The glow of that fire hovering over those people could probably be seen at night for hundreds of miles on the horizon of God abiding over those people. When they were thirsty, he caused a river to flow out of a rock. When they were hungry, he caused bread to come down like manna from heaven. The Bible says that he healed all of their diseases. I believe it's Psalm 106 that says there was not one sick or infirm person among all of their tribes. He made them wealthy before they left Egypt. The Egyptians just brought them their gold, their silver, their jewelry, their bracelets, their necklaces. And these slaves that had nothing came out of Egypt wealthy, were healed by the power of God, and went out into the wilderness to be sustained by God and blessed by God as God prepared them for what He'd been preparing for over 700 years for them. This marvelous land that had crops that they didn't have to plant and houses that they didn't have to build and cities that they didn't have to construct. And it was the land of the Canaanites and all the Jebusites and the Hittites and the Perizzites, all these other people that lived in that land. God had promised that land to Abraham. And He said, I'm going to give it to your descendants. And God said, I'm just going to drive them out of that land. And I'm going to cause them to leave all of their possessions for you. And you're going to come into a land, and God described it as a land that flowed with milk and honey, a place of great blessing. But when they came out to the wilderness, God had gotten the people out of Egypt. But the problem was really quite easy getting them out of Egypt. The problem was getting Egypt out of them. And they began to murmur. And they begin to complain, and they begin to say words of distrust of God, of His motivation. I mean, people begin to say, "Well, He's just brought us out here to kill us." The hair of not one head had been harmed. Egypt had been destroyed, but not one hair of their head had been touched. Their cattle had not been touched. Yet their people said, "Oh, He's brought us out here to kill us." 
Some people said, oh, if we could only go back to Egypt and have some of those good melons, those good cucumbers. I've had some good melons. I've had some good cucumbers. Has anybody ever had a melon or a cucumber that was good enough to go back into slavery for? I haven't. But they were wanting to go back to Egypt and regretting that God had brought them out. And so God has brought them out and is in the process of taking them to this marvelous, wonderful land that dates back over 700 years of promise to Abraham that God's going to do it. When we come to Exodus 33, God is meeting with Moses. And God says to Moses in Exodus 33, 1, Depart and go up from here, you and the people whom you've brought out of the land of Egypt to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your descendants I will give it. And I will send my angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanite, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hevite, and the Jebusite. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people." My brothers and sisters, this is such a sad chapter because God has been working, has been planning, has been designing for over 700 years for this day to come, that He's got a family. One of the most remarkable things about God is that He can create an entire universe and all that it has in six days, but He's still working after thousands and thousands of years to build and create a family of people that love him as a free choice of their will. A universe in six days, but thousands of years, generation after generation after generation, still attempting to build a people that love him. And we come to that moment that God is saying here, because I promised Abraham I would do this, I will not violate what I said I was going to do. You take the people, you go up to the land, I'll drive out all the Canaanites. I'll drive out all these other people. I will give you the houses. I will give you the crops. I will give you the cities. I will give you the wealth. I will give you all the blessings. But he said, I'm not going. I'm not going. Because basically, people didn't value him. He's going to kill us. He's brought us out here to kill us. God said, I've never done anything but do well for you and do good for you and strive to bless you. Well, he doesn't know what he's doing, and yet God had led them carefully, deliberately, nurturing, providing every need at every step of their way. I mean, my dear brothers and sisters, do you realize their clothes never even wore out? The shoes that they wore, moms, how would you like to dress your little boy when he's two years old in Egypt, and when he's 42, he's still wearing the same outfit, and it still fits and looks as good as the day you put it on him? Their clothes didn't wear out. The blessing of God was there upon them. All the blessings of glory were there, but the people didn't value it. The people didn't want it. The people despised it and rejected it. And so God said, take them on up to the land, but I'm not going. So Moses and God have a conversation. And Moses replies to the Lord in verse 15, If your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. If your presence, Father, is not going to go with us, if your glory, if the manifested presence that I've come to love and cherish and depend on for life, Lord, if you're not going with us to the land, don't bring us up from the desert. 
just leave us right here. Because, Lord, we're better off here in the wilderness with nothing but your glory than we would be to go over into the land and have all those houses, all those crops, all that land, and all that stuff that belonged to the Canaanites. God, your presence with nothing else is better than Canaan with all of its blessings and you not be there. And then Moses makes a remarkable statement in verse 16. He said, For how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight except you go with us? So shall we be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are upon the face of the earth. And the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you've spoken, for you found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. And then Moses said to God, Please show me your glory. That's a whole nother session that we don't have time to get into. But here is a man. 80 years old that begins at a burning bush that's an oddity and a curiosity that we've watched the evolution of this man to the place that he is saying in a one-on-one conversation with God himself, God, your presence and your glory, which started out as an oddity for me, has become the most precious thing in my life, something that I'd rather have your presence and your glory than all the wealth of Canaan. And Moses said, for Lord, what makes us different? I'm paraphrasing verse 16. Moses is essentially saying here, what will make us different and what will make us unique from all the other people on the earth? What will make us different? What will make the Jews different, the Israelites different from the Canaanites, the Jebusites, the Perizzites, all of these people that live in the earth? What makes us different except except your glory be with us. Now, my brothers and sisters, that is significant. Pastors of churches, that is significant. Ministers of the gospel, that is significant that we understand that. That the thing that makes us as believers, that makes us as Christians unique and different from the Rotary Club, the Kiwanis Club, the Deer Hunting Club, the Bass Fishing Club, the Flower Arranging Club, the Petunia Picking Society, or any other organization in our town where we live. The only thing from God's perspective that makes us different and makes us unique is what? His presence and His glory among us. And God said, because you've asked me for this, son, I wanted to do it. I wanted to do it. I really, really wanted to do it. And he said, my glory will go with you. And then Moses said a most remarkable thing when he said, God, please. Oh, I wish we had time to get into that. The key to understanding that scripture is the word please. That's a beg. That's not Georgia hospitality. That's a petition of passion. Please show me your glory. And in Exodus 34, we find the amazing story about how God was so pleased with what Moses had asked. And remember, my brothers and sisters, that Moses had already been closer to God and gotten in the realms of God closer than any other man in history had ever come. 
since Adam and Eve in the garden. Moses had been in a greater measure of glory than anyone since Adam and Eve in the garden. And Moses is saying, please, I beg of you more. Please show me your glory. And God was so pleased with what Moses prayed. He said, son, I'm going to come down. And he said, I'm going to get as close to you as I can get to a human being and not kill him. I'm going to come as close to you as I can get without you dying. He said, I'm going to hide you in a crack in the rock. I'm going to use a mountain, Moses, to insulate you from my power. And he said, I'm going to put my hand over that crack. And I believe the reason he put his hand over the crack was to keep Moses in there because he knew Moses had come out to draw near to him. And God still needed Moses a little bit longer on the earth. And he said, I will pass by you. You cannot see my face, but you will see my backside. And in Exodus 34, we find that remarkable story of where God came, had to insulate Moses with a mountain to keep him alive, and came as close to him as he could get without killing him. Because, and only because, Moses desired that because of the hunger of his heart. Church, that's what God wants. The biggest thing that God wants is He wants to be wanted. He desires to be desired. He hungers for a people that will hunger for Him. Now, we as individuals, according to 2 Corinthians 3.13, we are the temple of God. The presence of God lives inside of us. How? by the person of the Holy Spirit. We as the corporate church are a permanent dwelling place of God's presence and glory. Look with me quickly at Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2 verse 20, the Apostle Paul writes, Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together, and he's talking about the church here, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Now understand, we as individual believers are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God, the presence of God, the glory of God inhabits us and fills us. But when we come together as the church, when we come together corporately and become the body of Christ, we become the temple of God. And that's what Paul is referring to here when he said, In whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And then verse 2, In whom you also are being built together for what? Now look at this. You know, my brothers and sisters, sometimes we read the Bible so fast. We read it so quickly. And we race by incredible truths. Let's slow down. Verse 22. In whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. I recommend these three verses in the Amplified Version. I love what the Amplified says. Essentially what the Amplified says in verse 21 is in you in whom the whole building 
being welded and bound together harmoniously into a holy temple, sacred and dedicated to the presence of the Lord, in whom you are being built together to form a permanent dwelling place, a fixed abode of the Holy Spirit. Now that's significant. That's very, very significant. Because what Paul is saying here is the church's identity that makes us different and unique from all the other people of the world, all the other organizations in our city should be, and God desires that it would be, a fixed, permanent dwelling place of God's presence, of God's Spirit, where people can come and meet there with God. Now, you know today that the Old Testament is always the foreshadow of the New, that we'll never really understand the New Testament without having an understanding of the Old Testament. And we understand the Old Testament by understanding the New. The left hand washes the right hand. And so we put the two together and we understand what God is saying and what God is seeking to do. I'll not read the story to you. You go and read it on your own. It is recorded in 2 Chronicles 5, 6, and 7. 2 Chronicles 5, 6, and 7 tell us the story of the dedication of Solomon's temple. And on this day that this grand, wonderful temple designed by God and worth billions of dollars in today's value was finished, all of Israel was celebrating. This was not just a local church. It was all the people of God were celebrating over the final construction and the dedication of this building. A wonderful program was planned. However, in 2 Chronicles chapter 5, we find a most remarkable thing. It says that as they were beginning the service of the dedication of this building, the cloud, the Shekinah glory of God, filled the temple, and the priest could not stand to minister. And how in chapter 6, Solomon prays. And in chapter 7, the Bible says the fire of God fell, and burn up the offering that was on the altar there. And the priest could not even enter the temple because an open heaven had occurred and the realms of God had filled the Old Testament church in such a measure that the entire dedication of the temple had gotten rained out by the Spirit of God as God had come in such a phenomenal way and moved in such a powerful way. Now, my dear brothers and sisters, that scripture, that record is not in the Bible by accident. It is there reflective of the desire in the heart of the Father to come and meet with His people, to come and brood over His people, just like He was doing to two million people out there in the wilderness that the only thing that they had that made them different from the Hittites, the Jebusites, all of these other people that lived in that land was glory. And we see across the pages of the Old Testament an ever-increasing, ever-unfolding revelation of glory, of God coming down 
and appearing, God coming down and revealing, God coming down and begin at a distance and say, can I come a little closer? Can I get a little closer? Can I come a little closer? Can I come a little closer? That's the progression, the revelation of God across the entirety of the Old Testament until Jesus comes. And then we see in the New Testament this incredible mystery that Paul talks about. This incredible mystery that the world doesn't understand. What's the mystery? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Not just coming nearer and nearer and nearer, but coming to live among us and coming to live inside of us, the hope of glory. The dedication of Solomon's temple, how the glory filled the house of God That is reflective of God's desire for every church. Every church, irrespective of the denomination, irrespective of the doctrinal statement, irrespective of the sign in the front yard and the advertisement in the telephone, yellow pages. The heart of God is to draw near to His people and to reveal himself in his church. Now very quickly, we need to understand the difference between the purpose of the church and the function of the church because many people have the two confused. If you ask people what the function of the church is, most of them will say, well, the function of the church is to preach and to teach and to fellowship and provide correction and discipline, to be the salt of the earth and the city set on the hill. The function of the church is to feed the poor and be a testimony of Jesus in the city and provide fellowship and counsel and comfort to the body of Christ. And most folks believe that that's what the function is. I would beg to differ with that definition and would like to suggest that those things, preaching, teaching, evangelizing, fellowshipping, all of those things as wonderful as they are and as necessary as they are, are not from God's perspective, from where He sees it, as being what He designed the purpose of the church to really be. From God's perspective and what's in His heart today is that the purpose of the church would become a place of His abiding glory. So the function of the church is what we do. And then we go into that long list of preaching, teaching, discipling, evangelizing, ministering to the poor and all those things. Those are our functions. Those are the things that we as the body of Christ in the 21st century do. But there's a difference between what we do and who we are. Our function is what we do, but our purpose is what and who we are. And what and who we are is Ephesians 2. 20, 21, and 22, which is to come together, to be built together, bound and welded together harmoniously to form a permanent fixed abode, a place dedicated, sacred, and set apart and holy to the presence of God among us. God is jealous for a people who value His presence. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, the first commandment that God ever gave is, you should have no other gods before me. And my brothers and sisters, if you will go and read that scripture of Exodus 20, guess what came before Exodus 20? Exodus 19. 
And in Exodus 19, God has come and revealed His glory, revealed His power. Earthquakes, lightning, fire, smoke, thundering from heaven on the mountain. And God had come down and revealed Himself unto these two million people. And the first thing that came out of his mouth of commandment within that context is you would have no other gods before me. We have limited that commandment and restricted it to our narrow frame of reference. What God was saying in Exodus 19, here I am. And in Exodus 20, he said, don't do anything else and don't have any more gods other than who I am. That is our identity, brothers and sisters. That is who God called us to be. Now, right before class tonight, I flew in this afternoon, went to the hotel, went looking for something to eat. I went to the Lone Star Steakhouse. I went because I was hungry for a steak. I've been in South Africa for two weeks. You don't get a Lone Star Steak in South Africa. I don't know what they serve there and call it steak, but it's not steak like we know here. Well, I wanted to go and have a steak. I was hungry for a steak. So I went to the Lone Star Steakhouse. And I went over the menu and I decided just the one that I wanted. I wanted just that one. Yes, that one. And I wanted it cooked just like this. And I wanted the baked potato. And I wanted sour cream. And I wanted, is anybody getting hungry? All right. I wanted some butter. I wanted a salad. I wanted the dress. I, I was hungry tonight. So I placed my order with the young lady that came and was serving me tonight. Now, what would have crossed through your mind if you had been there with me if we went hungry for steak, found the steak, ordered the steak, told them how we wanted it, and then a few minutes later, the manager of the Lone Star Steakhouse came out and said, greetings, we're so glad that you're here, and oh, you've ordered this wonderful steak, and I want to tell you about steak. And he starts giving us a lecture on steak. And then he starts telling us about cows and where the cows are raised and how they're raised and how they go to market and how Lone Star buys their steaks and how this about steak and that about steak and how the steaks are prepared. And then after about 15 minutes of talking about all the different kinds of steaks, then the cooks in the kitchen come out and they're wearing robes and they sing to us a series of songs and musical renditions about steak. And then someone comes and sings a solo about ribeye. And then we're invited to mark our calendars because next month we're going to have a famous steak chef from somewhere else that's going to be coming to do a seminar on how to grill steaks. How many would have been with me ready to walk out? We didn't go to the Lone Star to hear lectures on steak. We didn't go to the Lone Star to get information on steak. We didn't go to the Lone Star to accumulate data and statistics on steak. We went to the Lone Star to what? To eat the steak. The reason most people in America don't go to church is they've already been to church. They came looking for the steak. They were hungry for the baked potato. They couldn't wait to dive into the salad. They had everything poised and ready to devour the garlic bread. And all they got was a lecture. They got a sermonette. They heard music and they heard talk and information and even watched us argue among ourselves over the best way to prepare a steak and what steaks will do and steaks won't do and 
who's got the best steak in town. And my steak's bigger and better than your steak. The reason they don't come to church is they've already been. Because what the world is crying out for tonight is to come and find a place where they can meet God. And that's what God is in the process of doing in our generation. Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hear my voice and open the door, I will come in. Now, brothers and sisters, we use that scripture often in leading someone to the Lord. Jesus comes, stands at the door of our heart and knocks. If we hear his voice and open the door, he comes in. But if we really want to read that scripture in Revelation 3.20 from its proper context, go back and read it, you'll find he's talking to a church. What Jesus is literally saying is, if any church hear my voice, I'm standing outside the doors of the church. knocking. And if any church hear my and will open the door, I will come in and take up residence in their midst. Colossians 1.15, Jesus desires to have the preeminence in the church. We are living in the last days and God is desiring to fill the church again with his glory. Now, there are a couple of things that resist the revelation of the glory of God in the church. And we're going to talk about these in some length in other sessions, but I put them out here to plant that seed in your heart up front. The first thing is ignorance. Some people just don't know that God wants to come to church and wants to reveal himself. Sometimes idolatry stands in the way of the revelation of the glory of God. And we define idolatry as anything that we value and we substitute for the presence of God. Idolatry is anything. Now, I spend a lot of time in India. We do great crusades in India. I'll be going back to India the 1st of March, and we'll see 40, 50, 60, 70,000 people a night in those meetings, and we'll see the glory of God come, and we're going to see tens of thousands of them saved. That's what happens. Beloved, they have gods all over India the very religious people. And what idolatry really is, is anything that we substitute for the presence of God. Some people think idols exist only in third world countries like India. The reality is idolatry can exist in any church in the land if something else takes the preeminence over Jesus and his manifested presence. The third thing that limits the revelation of the glory of God is our refusal to yield the right away to him. Now, remember that the glory of God is Jesus in our midst. Now, Matthew 18, 20 says, For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Now, I want to ask you a trick question, so don't answer too quickly. When Jesus said, Wherever two or three of you gather together in my name, I will be there in the midst of them, was he speaking of his omnipresence? which means he's everywhere at all times and places? Or was he talking about his manifested presence in his glory? Now, don't answer too quickly. Was he talking about his omnipresence? Or was he talking about his manifested presence? And the answer to the question is, it's whichever the church wants. It's whichever the church wants. Many churches just want his omnipresence. Jesus, we want you to come to church. but We want you to sit down be polite, don't interfere, got a good thing going, got a great program going, things are finally going well, we don't want Jesus coming in and messing up the church. 
It's not our church. It's His. Amen? And so it's whatever we want. And God is in the process of building a people in the earth right now that is not going to settle any longer for just the blessing of God and the omnipresence of God, but they're hungry and they're thirsty for the revelation of His manifested presence. Jesus is going to return for a glorious, glorious church. Now I want to close this session with a little story, a true story about a great man of God whose name was Smith Wigglesworth. How many have ever heard of Smith Wigglesworth? Well, Smith Wigglesworth lived in the late 1800s, died in the mid-1940s. was a great, great man of God. Read some books on Smith Wigglesworth. It'll increase your faith. I've been in churches in England where Smith Wigglesworth's grandchildren were there. And I confirm the story that I'm about to tell you here this evening. About a year before Wigglesworth graduated and went to heaven to be with the Lord, he was invited to a great gathering of Pentecostal leaders. It was the World Conference of Pentecostals in Johannesburg, South Africa. And Wigglesworth was an old man. He didn't minister much anymore. It was only maybe less than a year before he actually went to heaven. But on this particular afternoon, as he got up to address this gathering of Pentecostal leaders from all over the world, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him and he began to prophesy about three global revivals that would come immediately preceding the second coming of Jesus. And those that were gathered there that day basically just dismissed the prophecy simply because some of the things he was saying seemed to be so radical that surely God couldn't be in it. I mean, they loved Wigglesworth, but they looked at him and they thought, well, he's gotten old and, you know, he's an elderly man and, you know, his tires are getting a little flat and his chain's starting to slip a little bit and everybody's entitled to have a bad day and we love Brother Wigglesworth, but he's just having a bad day because they couldn't wrap their heads around what this man was saying. But he prophesied about three global revivals following each other leading up to the second coming of Jesus. And the thing that upset these Pentecostals that day was the first part of that prophecy. Because Wigglesworth said, it has begun when you see God pour out the Holy Spirit on the denominational churches all over the world, beginning with the Catholics. Now those Pentecostals just could not accept the idea that God would baptize denominational Christians in the Holy Spirit and they really couldn't get their minds around the idea that God would somehow baptize Roman Catholics in the Holy Spirit because most of those people there that day, they were unsure as to whether Catholics were even saved. And here's Wigglesworth saying he's going to give the same Holy Spirit given unto us to Catholics and Methodists and Baptists and Presbyterians and Lutherans and Episcopalians. Well, they just didn't know what to think about it. However... In the late 1960s and in the first half of the 1970s, God did exactly that in what was called the charismatic movement or charismatic renewal or charismatic revival. Whatever you want to call it, it happened in the second half of the 1960s and the first half of the 1970s when God began baptizing Baptists and Presbyterians and Episcopalians and all of these denominational Christians were being baptized in the Holy Spirit and operating in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And interestingly enough, it began at Notre Dame University in South Bend, Indiana, 
when 26 Roman Catholic priests got too hungry for God and started staying up every night to pray all night, saying, God, there's got to be more to it than this. And one night the glory came, the power of God fell, and 26 Catholic priests wound up on the floor under the power of God speaking in tongues, and a worldwide revival was on. Were any of you a part of that in the charismatic revival? If you were, raise your hand. Well, we find them everywhere we go. People that came out of the Catholic, the Methodist, Baptist, all over. Well, Wigglesworth goes on to prophesy that on the heels of that first wave of God, there would come another great revival. And he said, this will be an explosion of the Word of God. He said, I will cause my Word to be preached 24 hours a day, seven days a week, all over the world. He had no way of knowing about television. We just came back from South Africa. I had people in England that were calling my family in Tampa Sunday night from England saying to my children, we just saw your daddy on television in South Africa. Why? Because those meetings were broadcast on the God Channel all over Africa and all over Europe. Wigglesworth had no way of knowing that. He prophesied an explosion of Bible teachers. People like Joyce Meyer and Kenneth Hagin and Marilyn Hickey and Kenneth Copeland and Jerry Savelle and Jesse Duplantis and a great move of faith in the earth. He prophesied these things in the 1940s. He said on the heels of that second wave of revival, which we saw in the 1970s and the 1980s all over the world, he said there will come a third wave of revival. And he said this one will be characterized by my manifested presence coming to churches. People will not come to church to see any celebrity, to hear any great sermon, to hear any great music necessarily, but people will come from near and afar from all over the world into the church to experience my manifested presence. And he went on to prophesy that God said, when I fill my church with my presence, the day will come that I will take my presence and my glory out of the church and put it in the highways and byways and schools and homes and businesses and courthouses all across America and all across the world and bring in the greatest revival the world has ever seen. Now, brothers and sisters, we don't build our doctrine and our theology on the prophecies of any man. We build it strictly on the Word of the living God. But it is interesting, isn't it, to note that everything that he prophesied in the mid-1940s, we've seen the unveiling and revealing of that in the last 30 years in the church, in America, and all over the world. God wants to raise up a people, wants to raise up a church that's filled with His presence, that's filled with His glory. Because really, not much has changed in the thousands of years that's elapsed since Moses spoke those words to God. His glory is still the only thing that makes us different from everybody else. God bless you.